on the Empire Podcast this week, it's getting hot in here as we run our BDIs, shift around uncomfortably in our seats and cross our legs at the big screen rudeness of Lars von Trier's Nymphomaniac Chapters 1 and 2 and Stranger by the Lake. There's also Only Lovers Left Alive, the big screen return of Jim Jarmusch and if that all wasn't steamy enough for you, there's a New York Winter's Tale as well in which Colin Farrell takes off his shirt. Oof. Steady Helen, <laughs> steady Phil. All that, plus interviews with Akiva Goldsman and Matthew Modine on the Only Movie Podcast that thinks Chris O'Donnell is the definitive Robin. Really? He, yeah, he captured that character's innate sense of utter uselessness. Well, can't argue with that. Can't indeed. Uh, hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the 99th Empire Podcast. Stick a flake in us, because we have hit 99. Just one more to go until our big live extravaganza next week as we record our 100th podcast in front of an audience at the Prince Charles Cinema in London's bustling West End. What the Ooh. hell are we doing? Do we have to, <laughs> what are we doing? Do we have to, is it too late? What are we doing? It's too late. Yeah, we can't pull it's out. Too it's too late. We've printed the flyers. It's all good. Uh, but enough about that. Let's focus on the here and now. And today I'm joined by my very own Three Amigos. First up is a lady whose favourite Three Amigos film is Shooting for Love, which she assures me is a Three Amigos film and not just a very popular supernatural slash fiction flick. It's Helen O'Hara. You're obsessed with slash fiction. It's really weird. I'm not obsessed with it. Do I spend my weekends writing it? Yes. <laughs> but that's not obsession. No, I suppose not. It's good to have a hobby. It's very lucrative. 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 Uh, next up is a man so enamoured with the three amigos that he once reunited them for Empire magazine. Sadly, the singing bush and the invisible swordsman declined to appear. Uh, his favourite amigos film is The Ride of the Three Amigos, which again, apparently, is not a popular slash fiction. It's Nick Dissemblian. Hey! You guys, <laughs> look up here, look up here, <laughs> look up here, look up here. Um, I'm still expecting that. Hello. Hello. Uh, to be fair, the Invisible Swordsman might have been at the photo shoot. <laughs> there is no evidence that he wasn't there. So, hello, Chris. Have you ever seen a singing bush? <laughs> oh, come on. What? <laughs> what? Um, That's not a loaded question. <laughs> Should no, we move on? Just a tree. Let's move on. Okay. <laughs> just a tree. Okay. <laughs> Uh, last but not least is our art house guru, a serious student of subtitled fare, whose favourite Three Amigos film is the dark, <laughs> late Ned Niederlander film. He teamed up with Rainer Werner Fassbender on this one, I believe. Fennig Neddy is tot und hat viele Geschichte der Verzweilung. That's how Google Translate hasn't filmed me on that one. It's filled the Enough Hello. of the slash fiction, Chris. Oh, gross. No, uh, little Neddy is dead is and wears faces made of despair. I believe that's, <laughs> is that what, it's that's called? what I wrote, and that's what Google Translate told me that was in German. I would so watch I that. I would watch the hell out of that movie. <laughs> it sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah. It does sound good. Poor little Neddy. Everyone has to die. Is sometime. he your favourite amigo? Ned Needlelander. No. Dusty Bottoms. Lucky day. Lucky day. Lucky day. Mm. I was yeah. a bit gutted when they shot the Invisible Swordsman. <laughs> That's a great they just joke. set him up. That's an amazing <laughs> joke. There was time. more to come. He you know, Hollywood, the way Hollywood works, we'll probably get an Invisible Swordsman prequel at some point. You know, how mm. did he become invisible? What made him learn the sword in the first place? And how did he get to that point? Yes. Why did I he have a sword that. in the Old West? It just made no sense. Well, he's invisible. <laughs> well, yeah, so, that doesn't... I mean, that would seem to be, uh, you know, an advantage more in a gunfight. If he had a gun and yeah. he fired... Who's to say the bullets are invisible? So therefore, he would give away his position. Also, the sound would give away his position. But the sword is a silent killer, mm. as is mm. TB. But I don't think he can give people that. Invisible swordsman and invisible woman teaming up in a kind of a slash fiction Banderas, <laughs> Banderas Eta Jones style combo. That would be amazing. Yeah, there you go. It's a thought. Anyway, I'd watch an El Guapo prequel. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. Okay, that's enough of the three amigos. Um, time for your questions, which you've been sending in all week. These are all from Twitter this week. Uh, first one is from at Mr. Graham Pierce, who says, with Christopher's Reeve, Bale, Hemsworth, Evans and Pratt 
all starring as superheroes, what other Chris would you cast as a hero? You Look for, up here! You over forgot here, one. Over here. <laughs> I didn't forget one. Mr. Graham Pierce forgot one. Well, Mr. Graham Pierce, you forgot video blogger said, man. Oh, come uh, on, guys. Oh, hang on, hey, no, hang he's on. not a hero, he's just a dick. He's <laughs> <laughs> That's Wait. how it says the actor behind Con Man. <laughs> Oh wait, 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 wait! We saw them masking each other in this, this podcast. Is so, wait, though, this hang is on. so this is so inside baseball. I can't even begin to say the four people who watched the video. Chris was Viddy Blogger, so this no. Is, wait a second. I'm the no. exec- I, I, technically, I'm the executor of Viddy Blogger. This is like being State. Oh, this is like the worst ever episode of Scooby Doo. Everyone being unmasked. Can I just point out? I don't mean to be like Doctor Nick Nitpick, but he isn't called Christopher Bale. It's a Christian, but he is a Chris. But he's a Chris. No, that's someone, true. Maybe. Sorry, Graham Pierce. I'm the dick now. Um, what about Chris Moyles? Chris Christopherson in his peak would have been a good superhero, I think. No, he wouldn't have been. Um, he would have been. <laughs> no, no, he would have been. What you, country and Western man. Yeah. Wasn't he kind of folk super- Wasn't he kind of superhero adjacent? He was Whistler in Blade, and he's very, very good in Blade. He is good. And Blade too. So add him and, to the list. Um, he exits Blade Trinity early because he has presumably good taste. What about so. Chris? Chris Cowdery could play Batsman. Chris Cowdery. Uh, yeah. Ex England Test cricketer. Ex England Test cricketer, indeed. I mean, Chris O'Donnell would make a good Robin, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Someone, maybe. Someone get on that. Let's see what happens. What other Chris's are there? There's Christopher Walken. Uh, there's Christopher Cooper. Christopher Cooper. Christopher Cooper. Let's just all call him Christopher. Christopher. Yeah. There's Christopher Cooper. Christopher Walken. Christopher Pine. O'Dowd. Christopher O'Dowd. Yes. Rock. Christopher Rock. Chris Rock. Christopher oh, Rock. Oh right, I thought you meant The Rock. Yes, Christopher no. Rock. Uh, would you cast any of these people as heroes? Yeah. Chris in the O'Dowd. right film. Chris Pine yeah. could easily. Yeah. Chris Pine could do it do with his Do some superhero show. stuff. Yeah. He practically has already. Christina oh. Ricci or Christina Hendricks? Mm. Interesting. Chris's, technically. Interesting. Christina Hendricks, Wonder Woman? Well, yeah. I mean, basically, you know, the tradition is to cast any woman with boobs as Wonder Woman. So, you know, she'd certainly qualify on that on that score. I think I think either of them could make a good superhero. Okay, next question is from at NC Lowe, a con- regular contributor to the podcast, who asks, everything is awesome. The most catchy, unforgettable piece of film music ever. Everything is awesome. Thank you. I've just got it out of my head. Everything is awesome. Probably. Uh, it's it's got a fair it's got a fair shot. I think. I mean, I I went to see the Frozen sing along and then the Lego Movie last weekend and basically spent the entire weekend singing either Let It Go or Everything Is Awesome and sometimes both at once. Interestingly, there are weird songs that get stuck in my head and like I cannot get them out. If anyone says any fragment of a lyric from April Showers from Bambi, then that gets stuck in my head. I don't even know why. I haven't even seen the film that many times. It just gets in there. And I was told once, and I'm not sure if this is true, but it sometimes works for me. If you have a song stuck in your head and you can't get rid of it, Mm -hmm. if you sing America from West Side Story to yourself, you don't have to sing it out loud, then it will get rid of whatever's in there and probably won't get stuck itself. It does sometimes. But it it does tend to get out whatever's in there. So if you're stuck on everything is awesome, if it's been in a loop in your head for the last three weeks, try America. See if that works. There's a sort of earworm detergent. Yeah, weirdly. Oh, interesting. I didn't the uh, Guardians of the Galaxy trailer has uh, hooked on a feeling. It does. Uh, which is a hell of an earworm, and it kind of replaced temporarily everything is awesome for me when the trailer came out, and then I had to flush it out by introducing everything is awesome back into my brain. So one Chris Pratt movie-related song yeah. I had to fight another one inside my head. Damn you, It was you like Pratt. the scene from Superman 3 where Superman fights Clark Kent in, this, in the tire yard. Hooked on a feeling did bring back some pretty horrible feelings, memories of the <laughs> David Hasselhoff music video in which he snowboards. Have you seen this? I've never seen this. You've never seen David Hasselhoff's Hooked on a Feeling video? No. It's extraordinary. Head no, to YouTube. No, I haven't. Watch uh, it. Yeah, for me, Hooked on a Feeling obviously comes from Reservoir Dogs, but I didn't know that uh, the, the Hoff had made 
Dover owns it. Oh, that's interesting. Very interesting. We actually have a feature on the website at the moment. Ali Plum, who is not here this week, he's in LA, wrote, it's called 25 of Cinema's Catchiest Earworms. And uh, some good ones in there. I have the Tigers on there. The Banana Boat song. Deo, oh, of course, yes, from Beetlejuice. Some of them actually sum up what the film is about. Isn't that right, bro? Yeah, yeah. Is this a... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, this is a really professional link. Well, I brought along the lyrics to my favourite movie, Earworm, which is uh, City of Crime, which uh, features at the end of uh, Dragnet. Phil and I are going to attempt to wrap it. Is Mm -hmm. is this okay? Thank you both. But if you want to go away and make a cup of tea, now might be the time. If you've not seen Dragnet, let me quickly set this up for you. This is a a music video that was made, possibly unwisely, in which Dan Aykroyd and Tom Hanks rap about the plot of the film. They do, while like dancing this. around. So I'll do the Dan Aykroyd bit. We'll just do one verse. Don't tell them. Let's just let's just let it flow. Okay. All right. Here we go. See that Strebeck? We're just in time. We have stumbled into a major crime. They've got the girl of fright. Now that's not. What does that mean? Now that's not nice. I think she's the subject of a sacrifice. Buddy, we're putting this party on ice. But first, you know, we really ought to read them their rights. Read them their rights. Read them their rights. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a lot more. Should we do I it? I thought you were going to rap this. Well, you see, you've, you've infested us with no feeling whatsoever. Mm. I was concentrating on the dancing. <laughs> um, well, the dancing was spectacular. Thank but you. But the, there's a lot more. And Tom Hanks um, is amazing in this song because he really, he really goes for it. He really infested with some passion, Phil. You're not saying that I what? I was very, I was committed. You were, you were a little. I got a bit confused about the got the girl all fright. What does that mean? Let me see the lyrics. What have they got? What do you mean to see the lyrics? We obviously know them. <laughs> you obviously know them. You're not just reading them off a piece of paper. What have they got? Uh-huh. Tom Hanks. They've got the girl all fright. I believe that means they've frightened the girl. She's frightened. Now, well, that's, that's not her. nice. I think she's the subject of a sacrifice. They're going to kill her. Uh, that's the Alexandra Paul character, of course. Uh, but first, you know, we really ought to read in the rights. Either their cops are committed to yeah, their jobs. Yeah. It's good. Read them the rights. Then Tom Hanks says, go on, Phil. Well, I'm here tonight to rap about your rights, because right now you're in trouble. Don't have to say nothing at all. You've got two calls and you better make him on the double. See, he's still obsessed with upholding the law. He wants to make sure that the, the, the perp gets to call his lawyer, gets to call a loved one, make sure they're okay. And so it's basically a rap about doing a lot of paperwork. It's beautiful. Making sure you've got all your sort of yeah. bureaucratic basis okay. covered. Uh, and then Nick, the, the chorus. Oh, this is a city of crime. <laughs> Don't step out of line. This is a city of crime. You better be praying your judge is kind. Amazing. And it goes on. And if you want to see Dan Aykroyd in what is effectively a go-go dancing cage, um, while clad in what looks like a stripper's policeman outfit, head to YouTube, type in city of crime. You will thank me later. Or sue me. They've cleverly rhymed. By the way, I have rights, which I can rap about. So. <laughs> anyway, that's, uh, that's yeah. The next verse is them actually rapping through the Miranda rights in detail. Okay, it's quite a long song. I'm, I'm going through the lyrics here myself now. It's just it it doesn't seem to ever end. Did this chart? I imagine it, it was number one for ten weeks. I don't Good. think it did okay. well. I don't think it did well. I'm also going to throw in um, "Yellow" from Ferris Bueller and um, "Labyrinth" Magic Dance from Labyrinth. Yeah, okay. that's good. They're pretty catchy. Yeah. And we mentioned this in the podcast before, but I could not, for love and money, get uh, the uh, Iron Man 3 theme song, Can You Dig It, out of my head. Oh, so good. For ages um, at, the, at the end of that movie. I, when I was a kid, I think I might have mentioned this before because I really loved Axel F in Beverly Hills Cop a lot. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of my dream that everyone in the country would have to listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> Which seemed a bit fascistic looking back. You must listen to Axel F. But I interviewed Harold Fortemeyer last year, and I think I might have told him. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might have told him about that. What did he say? Uh, yeah, I think he was just, he was confused. We moved on. <laughs> he was confused and we moved on. I think like his, yeah. I'm confused and let's move on uh, to the next question from at David Sillen, 
who says, Avengers of the Beatles, Guardians of the Stones. This is a quote that James Gunn, the director of Guardians of the Galaxy, has been saying to virtually everyone who will listen and, and people who won't. Uh, what other musical Marvel equivalents can you think of? Well, presumably Cap is Glenn Miller or possibly Springsteen. Someone really American anyway. Mm. Glenn Miller? Well, just because he was in the 40s. So you're suggesting, and I don't mean any disrespect to Glenn Miller's family, no. but that his body is frozen somewhere in an arctic tundra just Wait, awaiting no, I mean, reanimation. Not like literally, I just mean like in terms of, you know, being from the 40s and being quite big at that point. Okay, not because he disappeared No. mysteriously. In no, I, I don't think he had a shield flight. either. Okay. Thanks. All right, glad we cleared that one up. I can throw a couple out there. Yeah, I do. Prince is Ant-Man. Because he's he's five he's foot small. two. Okay, yeah. Ant Man's been a lot of secret gigs in London. That's because he has, yeah. but no one noticed because he's very small. Um, who is the angry? Who's the Hulk of music? I was trying to think about that. Is that somebody like Lars Ulrich or something? But the Hulk doesn't seem like he'd be in a, in a group, you know. So that makes it kind of tough. Who's angry? Slash, like Noel Gallagher's pretty pretty annoyed. He's more grumpy than angry. Yeah, the Hulk you know, just kind of sat. And did interviews where he called the rest of his, you know, Avengers mates knob ends and <laughs> said, Oh, we're doing defending New York. What was that about? <laughs> oh, it's like Hawkeye. Yeah. <laughs> Hawkeye would be Stuart Sutcliffe, surely. The fifth Beatle. <laughs> the guy that just, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Not, Poor Hawkeye. Is that unfair? That's unfair but I'm okay. sure he'll get something to do in Avengers too. Maybe, you know, someone needs their car washed or there might be a cup of coffee that needs heated up. So I'm sure he'll, he'll get to do that. Who's, who's Tony Stark then? Is he like. Bowie? Is he Hendrix? What's he? Hmm. It feels like he's some. Maybe Bono. You know, he's he's he he stands with his arms aloft often. <laughs> he's got expensive sunglasses. <laughs> yeah, he's a no bit one all arrogant. over the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he's a helmet. <laughs> Sorry, he wears a helmet. Iron Man wears a helmet. <laughs> Not I Bono. Like Bono. Yeah. Here's a thing. A thought. Right, Thor, John Bon Jovi, great hair. Oh yeah, that's not a bad one at all. Yep, that's good. Is Moby Professor X? Or is that... <laughs> I think so. Let's do it. Michael Stipe, surely. He's given to enigmatic pronouncements. Okay. You know. Yeah. He withdraws from public life. Yeah. Who's yep. Superman? Ooh, oh, Justin Timberlake question. isn't tall enough. Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen. It's all American. Yeah. I've never seen him wearing tights, but <laughs> I'm sure he'd look good in them. I'm sure he probably does at some point. He would be absolutely amazing. Bruce Springsteen is Superman. That's, that's yeah, very the whole the whole Beatles Rolling Stones analogy. Is that a good one? I'm not a fan of that analogy. Really? Not really. It just seems a bit like I don't know. It just feels like they're appropriating other people in a sort of slightly arbitrary way. Well, he's just um, trying to make a point. Yeah. That the Guardians are a bit more, you know, out there. Like, the Beatles want to hold your hand, the Guardians want to spend the night together, kind of a thing. Well, that's... Yeah. I'm sorry, but the Beatles want to do it in the road. Does this, uh, the do Beatles are every bit as rock and roll, if not more so, than the Rolling Stones. Does this mean Avengers 2, Age of Ultron, they're going to go to India and take psychotropic drugs? That's We could only hope. That would be good. And then they're playing a gig on the top of Stark Towers. That would be, a, <laughs> that would be quite amazing. Uh, thanks for your question, at David Sillin, if that is your real name. If you want to get in touch with us on the podcast, you can do so in various ways. You can send it to Carrier Pigeon, but that won't work. We tend to eat them. Uh, you can tweet us. We're on Twitter at Empire Magazine is the handle. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast, or chances are we won't see it because we obviously get inundated with thousands of tweets a day because we're so effing popular. You can also email us, podcast at empireonline.com, and there's Facebook where we are, of course, Empire Magazine. A couple of weeks ago, we ran a competition on the podcast to give five listeners the chance to win a pair of tickets to attend the live podcast on Tuesday night, the 25th of February at the Prince Charles Cinema in London. Uh, the question was, could you guess Phil's favourite Ingmar Bergman film? The options we gave you. 
Die Hard with a Vengeance, Casablanca, or Wild Strawberries? Commiserations to the two people who actually did answer Casablanca. Uh, it's Die Hard with a Vengeance. It is not. It's not Die Hard with a Vengeance, is it, Phil? It's Wild Strawberries, and five people who correctly guessed it and then were pulled out of a hat, or actually, more accurately, a pair of Hulk hands, uh, were James Fawn, Matt Floyd, Wait. Nicholas Story. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. Gareth Dickinson and Chris Mellowship, who will all be attending the live podcast on Tuesday night. Can I expect your attendance? Will you be there as well, Phil? I'll, I'll check my diary. I might Nick, be washing my I hair. I think I'm washing Helen's hair. My word. Empire Podcast slash fiction just got a whole <laughs> new lease of life. Time now for our first interview. Akiva Goldsman will forever get a harsh time from geeks everywhere, for he is the man who wrote Batman and Robin. Widely acknowledged correctly, Chris O'Donnell's scintillating performance aside, I might say, as one of the worst movies of all time. But he's nothing if not resilient and has forged a successful screenwriting career since, largely based around adaptations of novels. And he even bagged an Oscar in 2001. He's now turned his hand to directing with the whimsical, century-spanning magical love story and New York Winter's Tale, a movie he was inspired to make after the tragic death of his wife. I went along to speak to him about that and much, much more, including Stephen King's The Dark Tower, an adaptation in which he's currently working, and yes, Batman and Robin. I'm delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by Akiva Goldsman, writer, director, producer of A New York Winter's Tale. Only three jobs. Why did you stop there? Uh, somebody was already doing costumes. Um, <laughs> I asked. It was a whole union thing. But this was your first directorial effort. How, was, how, long have, how, how long have you harbored this ambition to direct? Well, uh, mm, interesting. I really didn't want to direct pointedly for quite a long time. And then I sort of thought, mm, I would like to try it. Um, and I did a little television, sort of subversively. Mm. Um, and... Uh, and then um, I was trying to write this and my wife died. So I ended up kind of chasing some ability to finish this as a mm. way to sort of stay on the planet. Mm. And when I was sort of through the scripts phase, I felt like it was a very hard movie to get made and a very strange movie um, and one that had become very personal to me. Yeah. So I chased the idea of directing it. It's a very sincere movie with with this talk of uh, starlight and angels, and uh, it has a very very lovely uh, tone. Did that come from your wife? Was it in a way a tribute? Yeah, you, you saw this as a tribute to her. Yeah, it, it's a love letter to her, mm. and um, you know, it's also kind of a hail mary to faith. I, and yeah. I, I don't mean religious faith. I'm not a religious person, but um, I, I think you know, proximity to sudden death can make you either utterly cynical mm-hmm. or in a funny way, the opposite. I think it's a choice. Mm-hmm. And for me, um, I felt the need to believe that there's a reasonableness to all this. Mm-hmm. Um, and w- that's what this movie is. It's sort of a fairy tale for grownups. Yeah. Uh, this book, um, for many reasons, I guess, was very difficult to adapt. You, you obviously have adapted a lot of novels in the past. Is there a technique? Do you sit down? Do you write notes in the margin? Do you look at pages? Do you read it once and then go, okay, I'm going to go from memory? Or how do you, how do, you do it? Exactly all those things. All those things. Yeah, no, it actually is <laughs> entirely true. Um, I read it. Um, I jot stuff down. Mm-hmm. Uh, I underline or, or highlight dialogue. Then I put it away. And I try to build the sort of the story structure, the outline, you know, because screenplays are, you know, the screenplays have a formal structure, which was what makes them much easier than fiction, you know. Mm-hmm. So I try to remember it. I write it down. 
<laughs> and then I pick up the book again and um, I try to start, sort of go, oh man, I forgot that. And what about this? Okay. Yeah. You know, sort of it's a restructuring. Is it a case, do you circle dialogue? Do you think, okay, that's going to go in? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and sort of key passages and notions. I mean, the interesting thing about Winter's Tale is, you know, uh, there's dialogue of Hellprince, there's dialogue of mine, and then there's narrative of Hellprince that's become dialogue. <laughs> Was this the most difficult book you've had to adapt? Because it is so fast. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complicated process, I imagine, to adapt this for the screen. Uh, this is, yes, this this... I mean, they're all uniquely difficult. Yeah. Um, this is deceptive in that, although the novel itself appears when you hold it mm. to be nearly 800 pages, you know, the truth is the center of the novel is, you know, there are hundred pages, hundreds yeah. of pages on, based on a fellow, hundreds of pages about a fellow named Hardesty Marietta, yeah. who just doesn't make the cut. He was yeah. in one draft of the screenplay. But then, of course, what you're dealing with, even when you remove Hardesty, are two different time periods and this very sort of unwieldy tone, tone for some, um, which is magical realism, which is this sort of shameless Interact, interaction between bricks and mortar realism and high fantasy. But um, I, I imagine you're, you know, you've adapted Grisham in the past. You've adapted Dan Brown. Are you working at the moment on on the Dark Tower? Is that still ongoing? Dark Tower will never will never die. I mean, <laughs> uh, we are still we are still working our way through it. Yeah, because I imagine that is the magnum opus of your career in many ways. You must be looking at that sometimes and going, I don't know where to begin. Yeah. I mean, here is here is what I think if we are successful, yeah. the gift of today and that and its interaction with Dark Tower will be, which is we are not limited to a single movie. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's an argument to be made that if I had come to Winter's Tale at a different time in my life, you know, you could understand why actually the full novel would be an extraordinary, you know, 12 hours of television, yeah. especially the way television is now, because television and movies have inverted. Yeah. You know, when I was a boy, um, you know, m movies were for a few people and they catch on or they wouldn't. And mm. TV was for everybody. Yeah. And now TV is for 11 people, you know? I mean, House of Cards is made for the people who watch House of Cards. I mean, it's an extraordinary process now because there's so many platforms. Dark Tower wants to live, or at least our aspirations for it, uh, are that we, you, you know, we want it to live across movies and TV. Mm -hmm. And that lets us take Roland very slowly through his journey mm. um, rather than, because it, there's no version of Dark Tower that works in two hours or even six. Yeah. No, I can imagine it's quite a, uh, quite a tricky one. But is there, is there a book, for example, of the, uh, of the uh, I presume you're just focused on the seven and not the eighth one that Stephen produced recently, but you're, you're focused on the original seven. We are. Is there a, is there a well, novel that you're particularly looking forward to? I mean, we're focused on the original seven, but there are also some, some short stories that, yeah. you know. Um, and the comic as well, yeah. No, the comic not. No. The comic, I mean, just for purely right situations, yeah, yeah. the comic is oh, not okay, part okay. of it. Yeah, yeah, Marvel has the comics, which are Disney, which is, so it's a whole... <laughs> That's not going there, yeah. I mean, for me personally, and this will probably not come as a shock, I mean, even though the tone is actually in some ways very, very different, the grammar of Wizard and Glass yeah. is something that, you know, is... Wizard and Glass is kind of... For me, it's there is within it kind of a perfect novella, you know, the young Roland piece of it. Um, you know, I think it's just perfect. I mean, in a funny way, it is the opposite tone to Winter's Tale, yeah. but it has the same kind of elements. Um, it's just that is the dark world. 
Yeah. Um, so I, you know, for me, that's my sweet tooth. And then obviously there, there, there's some, there are things in the Wolves of the Collar that just like I want to see. Obviously, there's just the establishment of the world that is Gunslinger, which is interesting. You know, yeah. I mean, um, it, we all love it for a reason. You know what I mean? It's not like it's it, it, it's not singular. Mm. Um, in terms of what is lovely about it. Uh, one thing I've always wanted to ask uh, you and uh, Ron Howard is about the, um, we will talk about other things, I promise, uh, but is the intertextuality of the Dark Tower, which I think is a huge reason why it appeals to Stephen King fans. And uh, I, I just want to know very briefly how you're planning to approach that. For example, the fact that he he cameos in it himself, he appears himself, young Stephen King's in it, Father Callahan's in it from Cinema Thought. How are you going to set these things up? Well, all I can say to you is we've talked about all of it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, I mean, you know, I, you know, it's interesting because, you know, from Salem's Lot through to the Dark Tower, you know, the Father Callahan becomes quite an extraordinary char- character. You know, and... Randall Flagg hops around, you know, um, call them what you like. So um, I agree with you. I think that the Dark Tower is the spine to so much of Stephen's universe, both ongoing and in a retcon way. Mm. Um, And I think that certainly our attempt would be to acknowledge that and include that whenever we could. I want to go back to the beginning of your career now because uh, the uh, the client is the first credited thing that you're the first film that you're credited with. Was that your first project, or were there other things knocking around before you got into into screenwriting? It was actually my second project. My first uh, it was uh, my first project was a movie called well, it was a screenplay called Indian Summer that became a movie called Silent Fall, mm-hmm. um, and I had written it um, and sent it out to Hollywood because I knew somebody. I had a friend who was an assistant to an agent. You know, it's all the same thing. And the script was floating around. And it didn't sell for quite a while, actually, uh, for about... But um, somebody read it at Warner Brothers, and they liked the writing. And so they sent me in to have a meeting with Joel Schumacher, who was about two months out of starting, and they were throwing away the old screenplay. Mm. And, uh, you know, it sort of was one of those very fortuitous meetings. Mm. Um because not only did I work on the movie, but Joel believed that writers are kind of department heads in the same way that, you know, he's sort of like, <laughs> if there's somebody in charge of wardrobe, you know, yeah. or somebody in charge of, you know, um, set design, shouldn't there be somebody in charge of words? So rather than be expelled from the process, I was included in it. And that became really exciting to me because, you know, the problem with being a writer is you don't get to go to the party. You know, you spend all your time sort of building the nice, uh, you know, dinner and then you're locked in the kitchen. Mm. Um, it's really why I became a producer, not because I wanted to produce, but just because I didn't want to get fired anymore. <laughs> Do the firing rather than be the fire. No, That's no the, firing. No. I'm, look, I'm a big believer in inclusion. Um, you know, Simon Kinberg wrote the first draft and the last draft of Mr. and Mrs. Smith with me mm. producing it. And there were a lot of writers in between and Simon never left. Oh, wow. That's interesting. And, uh, you know, I have to talk about uh, your work with uh, Joel on the the Batman movies. What point did you go from the client with Joel? Were you the Batman guy? Did you know stuff about Batman already? Were you a fan? Oh, yeah. I I mean, you know, the irony of, you know, you know, the the abomination that is Batman and Robin is it really wasn't on purpose. I mean, like the truth is, you know, Batman forever, which, you know, taken on its own is not actually abysmal. You know, there are moments where you can see it's sort of rubbing up against the idea of what had happened in terms of sort of the sudden commercialization of Batman, but it wasn't anywhere near as egregious as Batman and Robin. It's only when you Mm. see them together that you kind of want to sort of do a a box set of death. Um, (laughs) 
But, um, you know, what's fascinating is I, I don't think, you know, I, nobody tries to make a bad movie. And yeah. we weren't actually trying to screw up the franchise. Um, and somewhere online, you know, there's actually a script. I rewrote Andy Kevin Walker's uh, Superman versus Batman mm -hmm. because Andy wrote a nasty one and I made it nastier, like literally just as like an apology. Because I grew up with Batman and I, you know, my comic collection, you know, was good or Marvel, <laughs> but it was good. And, you know, suddenly you're that guy and you're yeah. like, oh, fuck, now I'm that guy. Yeah. It seems to me that you became the pinata for Batman fans. Uh, yeah. I More so sure. than Joel or George or anyone from, the, from that movie. Yeah, I mean, Joel really sort of, um, you know, Joel had a rough time with it. Um, and, you know, George is sort of the best about it because he just, you know, he's very, very funny and charming and jocular. I almost never talk about it because there's some weird notion, again, that, you know, it's as if we did it on purpose. <laughs> um, you know, and I'm just sitting there thinking, well, so you guys have never tried to do anything and have it not work. I guess there's a there's a sense, maybe a perception for some people that the, the, the train was running out of control. Not that you necessarily did it on purpose, but that you couldn't stop the train. Well, I think none of us could, you yeah. know, and I think we've all sort of, you know, I mean, by the time you see that many protagonists and that many villains and, you know, I mean, it, clearly there are imperatives that are, you know, no longer simply story. Um, and, you know, that was unfortunate. I mean, I think... It was a reset, which in retrospect, you know, at least paved the way for yeah. something better to come after it. There's something interesting that, you know, has happened, which is when when we were, and when I say we, I mean, I, I will include myself as somebody who is a genre fan and a mm. comic book fan. When we were marginalized, it, you know, in the entertainment community, it, there was sort of something kind of noble about being loud and vindictive and kind of punishing. Mm. Um, but we're not marginalized anymore. We're the mainstream. Yeah. And to still behave like we're 11 years old and like scream and yell at people and, you know, behave in a way that does not acknowledge the fact that we are now in power is not grown up. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and it's uh, you know, and I and I think you know, I think I think geekdom has grown up. So I think our, you know, our level of comportment and decorum kind of could be a little bit different. It could be, it could be. And uh, I'll just add uh, one last thing, very very quickly. Uh, as as much maligned as Batman and Robin is, are you the man who came up with the bad credit card? Uh, I'm not. As, you're not. I'm not. Okay. I was going to uh, say because that's something you could take. I mean, that's <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I'm not. Sadly. <laughs> Okay. Well, Akiva, it's been an absolute pleasure, sir. Thank you so much indeed. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, time for movie news. Lovely, lovely movie news. What have you got? Helen. Hello. Um, I was at the BAFTAs at the weekend. Well, I say I was at the BAFTAs. So was I. I was in the media centre upstairs, far away from any celebrities. They actually let you near famous people. They didn't let me near famous people. Anyway. Because of what happened. Well, you know, I don't like the to talk incident. About it. The incident. So sorry. So sorry. Yeah, so it was a night... Probably not full of surprises, I think, this year. Uh, generally speaking, that's not necessarily a criticism. It I think felt there were a like, surprises. I, d I don't think there were big surprises. I felt like, generally speaking, the awards went to very deserving winners. You know, it's, it's hard to argue with most of them. But it was mostly kind of the stuff we predicted in advance. So Best Film, 12 Years a Slave, Outstanding British Film, Gravity, Director, Alfonso Cuaron, 
actor uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor, which mm-hmm. is a, a great decision. Of course, uh, Matthew McConaughey wasn't up for the BAFTAs, so that's not necessarily an Oscar prediction. Uh, Kate Blanchett for leading actress, that's got a big duh written yeah, next to it. Yeah. Uh, supporting <clears throat> actress Jennifer Lawrence, maybe a little bit more of a surprise. I think a lot of people were hoping for Lupita Nyongo. She didn't show up. She didn't show up because she's busy shooting Mockingjay at the moment, yes. alas. And then supporting actor went to Barkhad Abdi. Now, now that's, that I was think, a surprise. Well, I wasn't amazed. I mean, again, the front runner um, for the Oscars, Jared Leto, wasn't nominated. Yes. Uh, Abdi's performance was absolutely cracker um, and totally deserved it. And I think it was it was great to see him get some acknowledgement. Um, but yeah, that, I think that was the closest thing to a surprise, really. I loved, no, I loved seeing him on stage. He was, was great. He was the most thrilled happy. winner, I think. Just how excited. And also Tom Hanks' reaction to him winning was just amazing. He was so excited. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, love that. Did he start rapping City of Crime? He, he probably did. <laughs> when the cameras excited. were off him, yeah. So yeah, it was it was a good night. Um, I think, but again, you know, the speeches were. I mean, Abdi's in particular was charming, but there were none that were truly hilarious. I mean, I think we've in the past had really, really great speeches from people like you know Colin Firth, people like that who mm. are very, very, very charming and witty and good. And and this year they were they were all nice, but maybe not quite. I don't know. Not quite up to the standards of the very best. It's interesting. Joshua Oppenheimer, who uh, won Best Documentary, he's mm. the director of The Act of Killing, uh, made a three-minute-long speech uh, calling out yeah. the governments of the world for their apathy uh, towards the Indonesian genocides of 1965-1966, which inspired his movie. And then on the telecast, it got cut down to five seconds, and mm. none of his appeal uh, was broadcast. Well, it's kind of you, you must imagine he might be slightly annoyed about that. And I don't I know whether that, that is going to be seen anywhere else, but yeah. um, whether his speech is going to be seen anywhere else. I think there were other surprises. Um, I think Steve Coogan and Jeff Pope winning Best uh, Adapted Screenplay for Philomena was a bit of a surprise, bit of an open category maybe, but they haven't mm. been picking up anything anywhere else. So that was interesting. And I really like that film. Yeah, um, I do too. But Homefield Advantage for that one a little bit. Well, you could argue that, but uh, there are other wins in other categories that would perhaps suggest it. The Baptists aren't as insular as you're suggesting. Maybe. Oh, maybe. So what about the ceremony itself? Uh, Stephen Fry hosting for the 837th time. What do mm. we think of him? What do we think of the show? I mean, he, he's always funny and charming, and I like him as an awards show host because I think he's so over-the-top complimentary to everyone that it actually becomes funny instead of appearing a bit nauseating like it sometimes does at the Oscars. Yeah, it was interesting. I thought it was fine, decent, and uh, good weather as well. It's interesting not to see celebrities slapping up a red carpet, you know, with foam flecking around their ankles. Yes, or snow, as in as in recent years. Yeah, or snow. Yeah, that was horrible. Anyway, next 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 movie news, Phil. Moi. Hello. Oh, well, I know it's been two or three weeks, but I'm still angry about Postman Pat. Really? Oh, have let you made it go. A, have you go. made another statement? I've been I've been talking to my therapist. I haven't written another statement. Have you taken Jess hostage? Is your therapist called Therapist Pat? <laughs> <laughs> um, with this black and white couch. <laughs> oh, you guys! Oh, no. You're helping me through this with humour. I appreciate that. Um, there <laughs> is some news here. I've got, and it relates to uh, the Fantastic Four. Oh. Who would be the Fantastic Four? Would that be Steps? <laughs> Okay. Yes. No, steps of five people. Lee would be Mr. Fantastic. They'd be be East 17. East 17. Anyway, well, they've cast East 17. Uh, Finally, there's been a lot of chat around this. This is 20th Century Fox's reboot or remake or re-adaptation of the comic book. Obviously, the Marvel comic book, Fantastic Four. And the word is Mm -hmm. that the four are... Uh Uh-huh. Timothy Spall, Leslie Grantham, (laughs) Derek Jacobi... No, that's not true. I missed Some of that casting would not but, be as left field as uh, the casting is actually. <laughs> I would like to see Leslie Grantham as Mr. 
Mr. Ing- Mr. Incredible, Mr. I, Fantastic. Timothy Spall would be an amazing human torch. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, the four are, I think everyone knew that Michael B. Jordan, it's, it's not been a very well-kept secret that he's going to be involved. Mm-hmm. Um, Good casting. Yeah, he's in just casting. about every film that's being made at the moment. Um, Miles Teller, who I think Helen can fill us in on in a second. Kate Mara um, is an interesting one. Obviously has been appearing in House of Cards and uh, she's going to be uh, playing... Obviously, Sue Storm, brother of Michael B. Jordan's Johnny Storm. Um, sister. Presumably. Exactly. Unless she's really good. Yeah, sister and brother. How's she going to balance uh, Fantastic Four with her duties on House of Cards Season 3? That's a provocative question, Chris. I don't know the answer to it. Um, I'm sure she'll find time. She'll find the time. And uh, lastly, Jamie Bell. As the thing. As Tintin. <laughs> I'm glad he's doing something wholesome because I just saw him in Nymphomaniac, oh, Volume 2. Did you? He's not very wholesome in that. No. He's spanking all kinds of stuff. Um, <laughs> really? Is he spanking? He's, 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 it's spank heavy. Um, Is it Willie Elliot? <laughs> you do not see Willie Elliot. Um, <laughs> or, or, his, or his King Dong. Josh Trank obviously worked with Michael B. Jordan on Chronicle, and they seem to be reuniting the cast of Zac Efron kind of coming-of-age rom comedy, that awkward moment, <laughs> with Miles Teller reuniting that- with... Uh, that awkward moment when your uh, yeah. your castmates from that awkward moment are cast in a fantastic and you're form not. Movie and you're not. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Um, yeah, I don't want to be one of those uh, fanboys in the basement who starts railing against casting. Heath Ledger is a joker. What? That's rubbish. And then have to eat humble pie two years later. Um, I'm sure Miles Teller will be a fantastic, Mister Fantastic, but I don't quite see it. For me, Reed's always been an older gentleman. Uh, and I just maybe it's because Miles Teller is slightly tainted by Project X, which he was in for about five minutes. But even so, I, but I don't quite see it with him. I, I agree that in my head, Mr. Fantastic is older. Um, but I do think, I mean, I haven't seen Project X, which is probably helping because I know you're still scarred by that experience, Chris. And, and just let it all out. It's okay? your postman Pat, isn't it, Chris? It kind of is. But um, but I think he's really, really good in uh, stuff like Rabbit Hole. He's really good in The Spectacular now. He was even, I mean, very good in Footloose. I mean, it's not exactly a demanding part, but he was he was really, really charming in it. So I'm kind of optimistic, I guess. And also, I mean, he and Michael B. Jordan are also... They've worked together on that awkward moment. They're working together on Fantastic Four. It looks like, if this rumour is indeed true, they're also planning a a heist movie together. So they clearly Mm. kind of work well together, have fun working well together, and, you know, that should help the film. Yeah, it sounds like they're doing an X-Men first class and maybe picking these characters up and and taking them as the franchise goes on. I presume they've they've got a series in mind, so they're going to get older and stuff. So, you know, I I really loved Chronicle, which Mm. uh, had characters around the same age, bit younger and I had a great energy to it so mm. and I, I really have a lot of confidence in Josh Trank so I do too <clears throat> I think he's the big asset here probably I mean judging by Chronicle which he made on a, on a tighter budget yeah and through lots of interesting innovations and ideas and, and some great visual moments in it as well so you know on a, if you project that onto a bigger scale he this could be visually really really cool I just don't know are these big names for a poster are they going to get pack out cinemas I think the same thing here applies to the likes of Avengers and X-Men First Class that, you know, apart from maybe Robert Downey Jr., that, that wasn't filled with marquee names. It's the name of the team that's the, mm. the attraction here. This has been true for a lot of superhero movies. If, if the sort of the brand name, if you like, is strong enough and people are sufficiently interested in that, you don't need star names to back that up. No, I mean, it's interesting casting. I think Kate Mara is a good choice. Yeah, seems Fine. like it. Um, Michael B. Jordan, I think, you know, is going to be... A, 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 he's cocky, he's charming, he's got all the attributes that Johnny Storm needs. Uh, Miles Teller, I, I have to be sold on. Uh, but let's talk about Jamie Bell. 
potentially being cast as Ben Grimm, who, uh, and then The Thing, obviously, he'll mm. be doing it, I imagine, through performance capture. But Ben Grimm has always been a burly New Yorker, big, burly, slightly older gentleman. I mean, yeah, he, he, again, he's not the the version we have in our head. But, I mean, you can see that if it's performance capture for a start, it doesn't really matter what he looks like as a person once he becomes a thing. He's one of those heroes who doesn't switch back and forth between his super-powered persona and his normal, everyday persona. That we know of. They might have changed that it. That we know of. If they've changed that, then, yeah, they've got a whole other fight with the geeks mm. on their hands. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, he can do kind of gruff. He can do, you know, kind of tough. I, I don't think that's necessarily... A, a disaster. No, not saying it is. I'm just saying it's interesting. Nick, what do you got? I have more uh, casting news. Jai Ho, Jai Courtney has um, <laughs> has bagged another big part um, in the form of Carl Reese in Terminator Genesis, which is the upcoming fifth Terminator movie. Now, what do we think of this? Because obviously the part's been played twice before, famously by Michael Bean, mm-hmm. and then. Anton Yelchin, less famously. <laughs> less famously. <laughs> that was that was insinuated. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's good news for for Jai Courtney certainly. You know he's now played John McClane's son and the term and the Terminator's dad, John Connor's dad. <laughs> the Terminator's dad. I, like, there's a twist. Terminator's dad. So there's wait, so John Connor is the grandson of John McClane? Oh my goodness! <gasps> wait a minute. What? No um, wonder he beats the machines. It's interesting, Nick. Um, uh, you're not the biggest Jai Courtney fan at the moment, are you? He seemed. Let me say this: he seems very pleasant in interviews. He was on this podcast last year. He was, yes. I listened to that. I thought he was sounded like a very nice chap. I have yet to be impressed by anything he's done on the screen. I thought it wasn't his fault. Everything in Die Hard uh, Five, Six, Seven, whatever it was, he didn't help that film. Let's put it that way. I, I don't. Oh, I didn't. I didn't like him in that. What part. else has he done? He was good um, in Spartacus, Blood and Sand. I liked him in uh, Jack Reacher. I thought he was very good in Jack Reacher. Uh, I think there's something about him. He th- yeah, again, he's not my vision of a car race, but I'm not casting the bloody thing, so it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. I think he's certainly got a lot of talent. And it's going to be interesting. We don't know how big a presence this Kyle Reese would be in this movie because obviously John Connor seems to be a much bigger presence than this. It seems to be a slash, a kind of reboot, a weird reboot of uh, of the Terminator. Yeah. So it's, it's intriguing. He certainly burly, he's good looking, he can handle all the physical stuff. Mm. That's not what, That's not enough though, is it? <clears throat> it doesn't hurt. No, it doesn't hurt, I know, but I mean there seems to be a lot, a lot of actors who are, just they don't have any kind of There's texture a certain, and certain, bland, certain blandness. I think. I think Chris Pine sort of falls into that bracket a bit, maybe oh, no. Liam Hemsworth. I'm, no, I'm sorry, Liam but Hemsworth I just feel like there is a generation of actors that just don't have much edge. Yeah. I, I will I say, if, cool. if you're comparing him to Michael Bean, who is not that traditional hunky kind of guy, but he does have something to him in that in that film. Which Helen is raising her eyebrows. Michael Bean is totally <clears throat> hunky. Mm. Yeah, yeah, but he has an intensity to him, which he does, which, yeah. which let's say I haven't seen Jai Courtney do. But but it is early days, and you never know. Helen, one last thing: uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy teaser went up online this week. Now it is almost entirely what we saw at Comic Con. Um, to be perfectly honest, this is essentially the, the footage that was shown at Comic-Con, tightened up in a few places with some new shots of the Milano, which is Chris Pratt's character's ship and stuff like that. But uh, but it's looking pretty promising, if you ask me. Of course, I am kind of on board with this and have been for some time um, because it's some demented, crazy, funny space opera starring Chris Pratt as a you know a wannabe Jagger. dude who calls himself Star-Lord. I'm sold. However, if you're not sold yet, you might want to have a look at it yourself and uh, see what you think. What did we think? Looks fun. 
It looks fun, I thought. I watched it a couple of times. Uh, I don't know much about this. I was doing some, uh, some bit of research and reading on it yesterday. So it's his sh- ship. His ship is called the Milano. Yes. Now, he was taken from Earth in the 80s, which is why you hear hooks on a feeling on his Walkman, right? Yeah, so basically he was abducted as something like a nine-year-old um, and basically has what was in his backpack from those days. So right. he has, like, you know, all the stuff you would have as a, a sort of 80s kid, a Rubik's Cube and... Yeah, and a Sony Walkman, the so original my, one. So my question is, has he named his spaceship after Alyssa Milano? Is there, a reason, is there a reason why it's called the Milano? I think that's canonical and doesn't come from Alyssa Milano. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping it did. Yeah, it's got a it's got a, a potentially rabid raccoon with a... He looks, certainly looks angry. Yeah, it's sort of a genetically engineered raccoon, which is always a good thing. And um, I adore and have, since the Comic-Con thing, when I spotted it, they, they first described Groot who's the character voiced by Vin Diesel, who only has a three-word vocabulary, those three words being, I am Groot. (laughs) Um, Who knows if Groot is actually a name? It could just mean, you know, happy. (laughs) Anyway, uh, Groot (laughs) is described as houseplant slash muscle, which is the greatest job description, I think, in the history of film. Hmm. And I'm I'm absolutely thrilled by that, so I'm totally on board with this. That's pretty much the description of Finn Diesel himself. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Harsh. Uh, No, it's not harsh. Everyone loves a houseplant. It's awesome. (laughs) My houseplant dances along to Beyonce and posts it on Facebook all the time. Um, There are a couple of other things we want to, I don't know if we want to mention very, very quickly. Ride Along 2 has been announced. It's a huge hit in the States. Uh, Helen, I know you're a big fan of Ride Along. Uh, Haley Joel Osment, set for the Entourage film. Nick, you're a fan of Entourage. Are you excited about this? Haley Joel Osment playing himself? Uh, I'm a fan. I'm, I'm a fan of parts of Entourage. <laughs> let's be clear. I thought that the final season was fairly bad. I thought the TV series as a whole petered out, like many shows I love. I thought 24 petered out badly as well. So we'll see. We'll see. I'm skeptical, but but interested in the movie. I will say that when they get people on board to play themselves, often it's hilarious. Gary Busey is genius in Entourage. Um, people like Peter Jackson and James Cameron turn up, and they're very good. Uh, there's, there's just endless. Uh, David Schwimmer has a very funny part as himself. So if Haley Joel Osment's playing himself, I imagine they're going to come up with some pretty funny stuff. Is Seth Green in this film? I like him in Entourage a lot. Now, Seth Green is kind of the nemesis of yeah, the drama. Yeah, but he's, he's in it, right? Is he? I don't know for is sure, but bad? I imagine he will be. Is he like the Mandarin? I don't think he's going to be the, 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 the um, Galactus of... Um, oh. Or the Thanos <laughs> of this, right? He's uh, yeah. I imagine they'll find something for Seth Green to do. I hope so. Uh, I also want to uh, give a quick shout out to a movie I'm hugely excited about, which started shooting last week. First production still was released this week, and it's Bill, which is the first movie from the Horrible History slash Yonderland team, and it explores uh, Shakespeare's lost years. And I, I've got a sneaking suspicion it may be the closest thing we'll get to a live action The Pirates in an adventure with Shakespeare. I'm very, very excited about it. I am on board with that, and I'm on board with any Shakespeare that isn't bloody anonymous. All right, time now for a second interview. Matthew Modine is a fine actor who's shown up in the likes of Birdie, The Dark Knight Rises, Cutthroat Island, and Shortcuts over the years, but he remains best known for his role as Joker uh, in Stanley Kubrick's Stanley Vietnam drama Full Metal Jacket, and he's produced a lovely and award-winning app called... The Full Metal Jacket Diary, which chronicles his time making the movie. He came in to talk to Phil and I recently about his experiences on the movie, making the app, and much, much more. Enjoy. We're delighted to welcome to the pod booth, Matthew Modin. Hello, sir. Hello, it's very nice to be here. (laughs) I mean, I don't know if you can talk about the genesis of it, uh, but it is essentially uh, an audio book, but a moving audio book, an audio picture book, if you will, of the book you brought out a few years ago, which is now out of print. Yeah, yeah, we call it an appumentary. <laughs> um, that it's uh, it, it is extraordinary. I mean, so 
There was a book. There was a, a diary that I kept while I was making the film. And um, I, 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 a friend of mine had given me this old Roloflex camera, medium format, uh, beautiful camera. And he said that Kubrick was a photographer and this might be very impressive to him, that if you know how to use this old camera. So I taught myself to use the Roloflex. I showed up on the set and Stanley said, what are you doing with that old piece of shit? <laughs> and, and I said, what are you talking about? This is a fantastic camera. He goes, yeah, I know what it is, but you know, there's better cameras. And today, like if you want to take pictures on my set, you should use this uh, Minolta. And he'd obviously done a lot of research about these new cameras and mm -hmm. autofocus and things like this. And he talked me into spending way more money than I had because I was, <laughs> I was really, really broke into buying this camera and a whole set of lenses. Um, and I hated it. I, I mean, it was it was such a gadget, and yeah. and it did so many things. It was so complicated. But the Roloflex was so, such a simple machine, you yeah. know, with an f-stop and a and a shutter speed, and and you know, so you you took the the film speed that you had, and you, you did these simple calculations, and you focused, and and you composed a shot. Mm. And I loved it. And I loved that it was square. And it, I loved that that when you looked into the image, everything was kind of upside down and backward. Yeah. Um, I'm dyslexic, and I think that it helped me to see the world in a kind of way that maybe everyone else sees the world. Right, yeah. And and I kept the camera with me and took pictures on the set. And so, once the film was finished and time had gone by, I thought I want to do something with these photographs. I want to share them with people. I want to do an exhibition. I want to publish them in a book. And I found a publisher, and he really loved the photographs. And he said. I love the photographs, but you're going to have to tell a story about the photographs. And I said, well, I kept a diary while I was making the film. Uh, maybe we can go through that and find some stuff. And he said, transcribe the diary and let's have a look. And we transcribed the diary and we realized that there was this extraordinary story about a young, naive boy who comes to work with this arguable genius, Stanley Kubrick, a filmmaker in London. And on the this incredible adventure, you know, kind of the odyssey of coming from Utah, where mm. I, I grew up. I was born in California, but I grew up in Utah, and ignorant about so much about life. And I come to this brilliant man, and and I keep a diary. And there was great vulnerability that was in the diary, and we realized that the diary was now kind of more interesting than the photographs. <laughs> but together, it might make some kind of extraordinary book. So we did that, and. We wanted to make the book something special, so we uh, made a metal-covered book and put a serial number on it, and there's only 20,000 of them. That's mm -hmm. it. And then time goes by, and one of these geniuses from, from Apple, not the geniuses that work in the genius bar, but a real genius <laughs> named, named uh, Adam Rakoff, yeah. he, <clears throat> he worked for Steve Jobs, and he said, I really love your book. Would you consider making it into an app? And I said, what, what do you mean? He said, well, I'll record you, so it's like an audio book, but we'll create a special soundtrack, music and, and sound effects, and then we'll take all of the photographs, the images, things that you didn't include in the book, you know, personal letters from Stanley Kubrick, uh, you know, other personal items, and, and we'll do high-res scans of all these things and, mm. and uh, so that people can open the photographs up and look deeply into the photographs and make, create a very immersive experience with a with with your book and i said that sounds great um it has to be something that stanley kubrick would be proud of it has to be so let's make that the benchmark yeah. because stanley kubrick was, was was always so far ahead of the head of technology in fact if you look at 2001 a space odyssey 
you see on the flight from Earth to the space station, that big space station, a woman carrying something that resembles an iPad. <laughs> you know, so I mean, there he was forty, forty years, you know, before I invented iPad had ever been even imagined. Or maybe it's just a really tiny monolith. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who knows? We're yeah. not allowed to 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 let you go without asking about the West Wing. Okay. Because the West Wing is something that's kind of held in incredibly high high regard in these in these parts. Really? Yeah. What was the yeah. what was the experience like for you coming onto a you know a program with a very well established cast that all had a rapport and? Well, I was looking forward to that, but the whole episode was away from the West Wing. It was all in Illinois. It was all in Chicago. She she goes home. Allison Janney's character. Uh, to take care of her father who's getting Alzheimer's. So it really had nothing to do with the West Wing, which was very disappointing. So you never got to meet the rest of the cast? No, I never got to meet him, no. And and Robbie Bates, who's a terrific playwright who wrote that episode, he told me if I do the episode uh, with Allison, who's an old friend, we had done a play when we were both very young together, a two-hander, we did it in New Jersey. Hmm. Um, uh, And I I love her. Uh, We wanted to, to work together and he said if I do this episode of the West Wing he would write a play for me which that's uh, like 10 years on now and he still hasn't written the play <laughs> so I'm, I'm still holding his feet to the fire saying, has he it. downloaded the app I doubt it I doubt it I haven't I haven't, haven't seen I tell you um, I don't take any kind of recreational drugs or, or pharmaceutical things like that I mean I, I really don't I've, I've even given up I don't drink booze anymore mm. um at least for a year and a half. I may still soon, at the end of February, when I finish this program that I'm on, I may have a glass of red wine, but it will no doubt drown me in... Um, uh, I'll, I'll be drunk before the second sip. I thought you were going to say at the end of the interview. Yeah, but I was. I was <laughs> but I, I, I was on the plane, and, and this guy Robbie Bates. I'm going to out you, Robbie Bates. <laughs> he said, "Oh, you know, I take these pills because I get anxiety on the airplane. Here, have one." I said, "No, no, I don't want one." He goes, "No, take a half of one." And I took a half of this pill, which was like a, we call them uh, roofies in in America. Yeah, <laughs> what? I, 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 it wasn't a roofie, okay. but I may as well have been. I was like Homer Simpson drooling and uh, I mean sounds like the Wolf of Wall Street yeah I have like I, I haven't seen it yet I haven't seen it's the Wolf you were in it by sounds of things <laughs> yeah don't I mean, you remember making it it was yeah. a yeah. <laughs> you were really yeah. good. Top Gun thing so in essence you're responsible for Tom Cruise's career that's a pretty big burden for Amanda, <laughs> for Amanda's shoulder how do you feel about that I mean it's certainly a movie that, that put him over over the top but mm. you know I was in the shower in Los Angeles uh, uh uh, 20 years ago and I was trying to think if there was a recipe to uh, this pre-Full Metal Jacket um, if there was a recipe if there was a, uh, a, a, a periodical chart of actors right you mm. know chemistry and you put if there was a recipe for success in Hollywood mm. what would it be can, can I figure that what that is so I started looking at actors careers from from you know as far, far back as I could remember like John Wayne what was the movie that made John Wayne stagecoach okay John Wayne stagecoach what was the movie that made Mel Gibson uh, road warrior you know uh, what was the movie that made Henry Fonda grapes of wrath what was the movie that you know and I just kept putting people up on the chart and then I said okay now can I derive something from these films that each of these films uh, provide an audience Mm -hmm. and it was with the exception of like Cary Grant and uh, and a few other light light comics 
comedical actors, every single one of them had something in common, and it was killing somebody, and it was a justifiable murder. It wasn't just it wasn't just a, you know like a horror film kind of murder. It was it was Henry Fonda taking an axe handle and beating somebody's head in in Grapes mm. of Wrath. It was Mel Gibson avenging the death of his family. It was Tom Cruise killing you know the ultimate bad guy in America, the communists, um, the Russians. It was uh, John Wayne killing the Indians in Stagecoach. It mm. was, you know, and, and it was, and, and it made me sick to my stomach. It made mm. me not want to be a part of this profession anymore for, to, to give people the, the vicarious experience of, of seeing some, somebody kill somebody else because they were, you know, perceived as, as a bad person. So when I did get Full Metal Jacket, having had this uh, periodical chart that I'd created in my mind, um, I decided that because I was going to kill this young Vietnamese girl who was begging me to end her life, mm. that I wanted to splash blood on the audience, that, that I wanted them, the audience, to have the visceral experience of what it is to take another human being's life. Mm. You know, whether, you know, you may look at it as, upon, uh, as a kind of euthanasia because she was going to die anyway. Um, but, yeah, I, I really wanted to splash blood on the, on the, on the audience and... and uh, Stanley Kubrick appreciated mm. my effort and my goal to to achieve that, and I think we did. And I think that people that that's one of the reasons why Full Metal Jacket continues to have a relevance today. It continues to to find an audience today, and um, is one of those kind of films that that will continue to have relevance mm. and and live on in the future. Where Top Guns will. will Top Gun kind of movies will be uh, popcorn movies that are that are just fun and and. Uh, but but disposable kind of movies. Mm. It's not a movie you go to for vicarious thrills for no. Metal Jacket. No. Absolutely not. What's your relationship like these days with Val Kilmer? Um, I haven't seen Val in a long time, you know, but he's... I, I I don't know if you know he's he's touring around playing Mark Twain. He mm. puts on a lot of, mm. of uh, prosthetic makeup and and I I, I saw online you can go, uh, you can go online and uh, find him doing Martin Luther King. He's, he's impersonating Martha, Martin Luther King doing one of the most uh, famous uh, speeches in, uh, ever, you know, I Have a Dream speech. The, the fact that he's doing that stuff is what happens is, as a human being, I think that w w this experience of living, we want to read about people who do and say amazing things because we want to have that spirit inside of ourselves. And certainly the, the genius of Mark Twain and the, the brilliance of, of Martin Luther King, that Val Kilmer wanting to have those spirits inside of him, to memorize those people's speeches, uh, is a commendable thing. And, mm. and uh, uh, you know, I'm glad he's spending his time doing that. Just so we should put that into context, that he, Val Kilmer, famously kind of attacked you unsolicited in a restaurant? In a restaurant, About stealing yeah. all of his parts. Yeah. And then saying something like... Don't you go for that full metal jacket role yeah, that yeah, I really yeah, want? Yeah, that he which was, you weren't aware of. He thought he thought that that I had uh, that I that I had the job, and in fact, I'd never even uh, I'd heard that Stanley Kubrick was casting a film, but you had to audition and send a, which was very difficult at that time to find a, video, a VHS camera uh, and and tape yourself and send the tape to Stanley Kubrick. It was quite an expense and 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 difficult, and I didn't do it. I was I was working and. And so Val Kilmer had obviously sent a tape to Stanley Kubrick and, and didn't get the job. Um, although Leon Vitali, who worked with Stanley Kubrick for many years, told me that he saw Val Kilmer's uh, audition tape and he was very good. Mm. 
but but Stanley didn't feel that he was right for Private Joker. I just like the, there are a couple of little barbs about Fowl in the in the diary. There is a, at yeah. one point you mentioned seeing all the tapes, all, all the audition tapes, yeah. and you go, I wonder if Fowl Kilmer's tape was yeah. in there. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course, I've got the role. But yeah. 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 So it's mysteriously on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, in fact, I wasn't cast. The, the person who Stanley had originally cast was. Uh, Oh shoot! What's his name? Um, he's got three names: uh, Anthony Michael Hall. Yes. Ah, oh. yeah. But but Anthony Michael Hall, uh, thankfully for me, uh, his father was managing his career and asked Stanley Kubrick for a million dollars that he wanted. He wanted Anthony to be paid a million dollars, and Stanley yes. said, "This is ridiculous. I'm not paying an 18 year old kid a uh, million dollars to to act in my movie." When the budget of the film was was really remarkably low, the budget of Full Metal Jacket, and it is now one of Warner Brothers' uh, most successful titles. I think it's really? in the top five money earners. Uh, certainly with the DH, the the, the VHS tape, the DVD, the, and now the Blu-ray, yeah. it's it is one of Warner Brothers' biggest selling DVDs. It's astonishing. I mean, I mean, most people run through brick walls for Kubrick. I mean, not that much is clear, but. Yeah. Even so, when he comes to you and goes, I'm going to shoot a Vietnam movie, but we're not really going to leave London yeah. to do so. Is that a leap of faith? How much How much do you believe that this man could pull it off at it's the time? It's Stanley Kubrick, yeah. you know, and he's a genius. And if he said he could do it, uh, <laughs> he, he could. I mean, we did. And we, and we filmed at Becton Gasworks, which um, is, is one of the most toxic places I've ever been to in my life. I think there are about, if you go Wikipedia, I think there's, it says there's about 28 known carcinogens that were produced on the, on the soil. And um, I know people that worked on the film are starting to get sick. Um, it's part of the reason why I'm not drinking and why I'm going through this kind of cleanse is to try to, because uh, because because people that worked on the film are getting sick oh and God. getting cancers and stuff like that. Really? To try to to clean clean myself out, and clean my liver, and because uh, that's what happened to John Wayne, isn't it? Yeah, on yeah. his uh, which, I can't remember which which I think, was, it, was. I think it was Hellcats. They were out in the desert yeah. and they were testing nuclear bombs, and and uh, the, the the fallout came and and everybody on that film died of cancer. Yeah, so, you know, touch wood, uh, that, that doesn't happen with the people that worked on Full Metal Jack. Because it wasn't just the chemicals that were there, it was the fires. I mean, we were burning, the mm. most, most of the movies lit with fire. Mm. It was a tremendous amount of fuel that was, that was burned. And then there was the smoke machines, which uh, I think it's funny because they always, when you work on a film and you're inside of a closed space and they say, oh, this is good smoke. This is not. This is not the smoke that's bad. And then a year or two goes by, and they say, "Oh no, no, that was bad smoke. This is good smoke." And then two years go by, that was bad smoke. This is good smoke. There's no smoke that's good that you're supposed to take into your lungs. And uh, you know now they use mineral oil. They burn mineral oil. So you imagine just taking a couple of tablespoons of mineral oil over the course of a day and pouring oh that God. into your lungs and those mm. beautiful little sacs, having to try to expel it, cough it up, and spit it out. But it, it, when I would go home from Becton Gasworks and get in the tub to wash up, I would turn the tub blue, a cobalt blue. The stuff that would come off my body would turn the white porcelain in the tub in, 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 on, in Notting Hill <laughs> blue. So wow. that, that, that's not good. Wow. It's yeah. not good. Uh, if you do get the full metal jacket <laughs> iPad out, uh, open the photographs up and look at the soil. You can see the stuff that we were not just inhaling, but when the trucks would go by and kick up dust, it was all coming down on top of our tea break. Yeah. Tea breaks. Yeah. These, um, yeah. I really want you to ask you to play out with a Mickey Mouse song, but I don't guess we can. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's fascinating about that song is that, that Kubrick didn't ask Disney for permission to use it. He just did it. He just said, fuck it, let's just do it. And if they say no, then I'll deal with it. But, um, you know, maybe, you know, but Shh. yeah, he, so he just did it. And the thing that's fascinating about it, I don't know if Kubrick, I'm sure that he did. I mean, because it's not really anything he didn't consider. 
if you think about empire building, and, and certainly America is like the most recent, you know, we don't call ourselves an empire, but, you know, really is, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and now one that's falling. Um, who's the leader of the gang that's made for you and me? Or, you know, who's the leader of the club? Sorry. Who's the leader of the club that's made for you and me? Who is marching coast to coast and far across the sea? M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. That it's it's a song about about globalization. If, if in, in, I think the way that Kubrick thought about it, and and about uh, American military going coast to coast and far across the sea, and and spreading American uh, democracy, which is just really American capitalism. Mm. And you know, it's quite similar to the lyrics of the Marine Corps. Um, anthem, isn't it? The halls of, I- halls of not the halls of I- Ipanema, the <laughs> beach in Brazil. Yeah, <laughs> Montezuma. Mon- yeah, I think. No, it's not Montezuma. <laughs> it's not that either. No. Let's move on. <laughs> yeah, it's a lovely note in which to end. As we as we mind <laughs> lyrics terribly, yeah. Matthew Modine. It's been an absolute pleasure. Could talk to you forever. Uh, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you very thank much. You. Let's move on to the movie reviews now. It's an interesting week of releases. Uh, shall we start with? Where should we start? I don't know where we start. Where should we start? Pick one. By the lake. Pick one. Jarmusch. Jarmusch? Yeah. Should we do the Fandango? Uh, yes. Only Lovers Left Alive. It's the uh, return of Jim Jarmusch. Of course, one of the giants of the US independent scene. It's a pleasure to have him back. It's a typically Jarmuschian spin on vampires starring Tilda Swinton and Tom Hiddleston. Scream. Uh, as a couple who fang each other for the memories. Um, oh, dear. What? What? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Helen. Yeah, um, I think, right... People either love Jim Jarmusch films, generally speaking, or hate them. I happen to be in the lovers' camp. Um, I think he's he's great. You, you have to be in the mood for it a little bit and just kind of go with a lack of anything much resembling a plot. But, you know, that's fine. And it, it is a, a source of continuing amazement to me that no one has cast Tilda Swinton as a vampire before, nor nor Tom Hiddleston, to the best of my knowledge. And, and having them as both as vampires and playing sort of, you know, a couple is just... A stroke of unbearable genius, which uh, which really pays off and, and kind of carries the film along. So the idea is that uh, Adam, who's Hiddleston's character, is basically suffering from existential ennui as a result of his immortal lifestyle. Um, oh, and get his, over yourself. I know he's kind of he's kind of a rock star, and he's kind of just you know holed up in at home and and not dealing terribly well with the modern world. His uh, wife Eve, who's obviously Swinton, is uh, you know living in North Africa, has an iPhone, is a little bit more kind of au fait with proceedings, um, and is uh, basically comes to help him in his hour of need because he's clearly considering you know topping himself in a vampire fashion. Um, Which wouldn't involve what? Well, just you know all the usual things with the sunlight and the. <laughs> with the sunlight and the with garlic, the sunlight and, the and, the garlic and, the... and the steaks okay. and what's it? Uh, <laughs> Picnic. Is but what no, it's, it's. I mean, it's not so much about. It's not so much about you know traditional vampire mythology as it is about just ridiculously cool people being ridiculously loose okay. and sort of lying around looking ex- extraordinarily scenic um, as they suffer these existential crises. Um, things are not aided by the arrival of uh, Eve's baby sister, who's played by Mia Wasikowska, mm-hmm. um, who proceeds to really mess up proceedings um, and uh, Anton Yelchin's in there as the sort of human assistant to these to these vampires so yeah I mean listen if if you like Jarmusch this is none more Jarmushy. Um they might as well be just drinking coffee and cigarettes all the time do you drink cigarettes? you anyway, don't drink cigarettes you know well, what I mean you can drink cigarettes they probably can it's not recommended <laughs> but you can um, and uh, and yeah just, just really just really cool is there a shootout? Um, I think you can pretty safely say that there isn't 
just just don't go expecting the kind of the action stuff. Don't go expecting the kind of underworld vampires, but also don't go in expecting kind of Twilight vampires. It sounds like Lord Byron's favourite ever film. Yes, it would be, 100%. What do you mean it would be? What are you saying to me, Helen? He's he's not dead, Phil. You're right. I apologise. <clears throat> okay, good. <laughs> good. So I, I believe there are, there are blood popsicles in this movie. Is this a new thing that, that can catch on, <laughs> do you think? I think probably. There are enough Twilight fans out there in the world now. Quite possibly. Quite possibly. So four stars for this. It was four stars from us. Four yeah. stars for this. So uh, do you think people who aren't Jarmouche fans yeah. might be more tempted to take a, a gamble on it, given the presence of, of Loki? Yes, I do. Okay. I think, I, I've, I mean, anecdotally, I've seen, I've been seeing this on Twitter for quite some time, people losing their minds at the prospect of um, Hiddleston and Swinton as a couple on screen. And, and it does make perfect sense to me. So, uh, so yeah, absolutely. Even if you don't like his stuff normally, give it a go. It's a good point about Tilda Swinton because she has she has the, brought a one and vampiric quality to quite a lot of the films she's been in. Exactly. You know, and in Orlando, obviously, she's had that kind of time-spanning presence yeah and she was i mean she is one of the highlights i'm a, i'm a bit of an apologist for the film which i know most people aren't i love constantine and i think she's the highlight of constantine as well as the angel gabriel she's very good she's very good constantine uh four stars as we said for only lovers left alive let's move on now to another tale of i was gonna say whimsy whimsy and fantasy and all sorts of nonsense it's uh, a new york winter's tale which is the akiva goldsman movie based on the novel by mark hilprin and this one stars colin farrell uh as a thief in the early 1900s in New York uh, and he falls in love with Jessica Brown Findlay who is suffering from consumption and she's about to die from consumption but uh, he's being tracked down by his former thief boss Russell Crowe who is an, <laughs> an all-powerful <laughs> demon who uh, who wants to uh, kill him before Colin Farrell can bestow his miracle upon <laughs> you almost got through that without laughing. Bestow his miracle upon Jessica Brown Findlay. Uh, yeah, it feels uh, it feels horrible for me to be laughing about the plot of this movie because it is what it is. It's a fantasy, um, uh, and it's based on a huge book by Mark Helper. It's well, it's like eight hundred pages, something like that. And um, it does feel bad because, as you saw, as you heard in the interview with uh, Akiva Goldsman, the, you know, he 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 made this this film from a very very genuine very very sincere place and uh you know he genuinely believes in the, in the in the magical realism of this film um i don't think he was entirely successful in achieving his aims but i can't knock the sentiments that is seems it, fair is it true this film has a horse in it called horse that flies well it has another name um but oh, yes does it? Uh, well colin farrell calls it horse because he doesn't know its real name but it's actually called something else from the sounds of it that's the least strange thing in this film i've been reading i haven't seen it but i've been reading some reviews and certainly on twitter it's been getting some very strong reactions yeah um i do i, I do wonder how much of this is the fact that it's a kiva goldsman and you know he is very much a, a human pinata for, for geeks so there's, i there's, don't think that he's a, the he's not you know michael bay i don't think there's a big agenda to not necessarily big faction but, people who, but there who are, are like Akiva Goldsman I don't think he's you know but there are tons of people out there who were just completely just lining up to abuse his films and I almost think, sight unseen having said that it's not a great film yeah I think I think this kind of um, of whimsical romantic fantasy drama has to be done yeah. really really well for people not to kick it yeah. I think I think just inherently in the nature of the drama, it has to be spot on, mm. or people are going to just find it ridiculous and and uninvolving. And I, I think this hasn't quite hit the mark, and therefore, you know, it's it's going to it's going to get a little bit of 
negativity. Okay. Yeah, I think a lot of people have, uh, I've seen a lot of people on Twitter already marking it out as one of the un- unintentional comic highlights of the year. And certainly, I don't think it quite achieves a sense of magic that it, it wants to achieve. Uh, simply having a lot of lens flares on the screen doesn't necessarily denote the presence of magic in the movie. Having said that, I enjoyed the central relationship between Colin Farrell and Jessica Brown Findlay. She's got lots of charm, uh, and he's obviously, you know, he's Colin Farrell, and I yeah. think he's fantastic. Uh, Russell Crowe in this movie is the bad guy, the muscle. It's not one of his finest performances. There's an Irish accent, which is, I would guess, geographically perhaps inaccurate. But uh, <laughs> Does he sing? He doesn't sing, sadly. And, and then there's the, the movie takes a shift into the present day uh, for about the last half hour or so, which I think will take a lot of people by surprise, even though it's, it sets it up that way at the, at the beginning of the movie. Um, it's not an entirely successful film. We gave it two stars. And it didn't do that well at the box office either, did it? It hasn't done that well at the box office. It's one of those films, it's, it's kind of a strange one. It's it's a fairly low-budget movie. Mm. Uh, by you know, Even though you would think there are big megastars in it, but I imagine Russell Crowe did this largely as a favour for his friend. There's, there's a, a cameo There's, a, there's a major cameo. Um, I don't want to give it away. It's been given away on the internet. It's on the IMDb page, for goodness sake. It may even be in the trailer. Um, it's a it's a huge, huge megastar. He turns up for about three scenes. He's not very good in those three scenes. New York Winters Fail? Indeed. And of course, the book is called Winter's Tale, uh, but it's been renamed New York Winter's Tale because uh, A, it's set in New York, B, they don't want to get confused with, with the Shakespeare play, and C, I presume the, the people marketing it were idiots. Does anyone exit left pursued by a bear in this? No, they exit left pursued by a crow. Oh, so yeah, it's totally different from Win- Winter's Tale then. <laughs> kind, of, yeah, kind of different. Uh, okay, uh, time now for the rumpy pumpy section. Mm. Uh, I'll take this one. You want to take this one? You want to take Lars von Trier's Nymphomaniac, roughly? Um, sure thing. Or talking of funny titles, this should technically be called Nymph, open bracket, close bracket, maniac. <laughs> but let's, let's call it Nymphomaniac to save time. So this is uh, the sexual odyssey of a lady named Jo, and we see her played by two different actresses. Stacey Martin plays the younger version, and then uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg takes over, and mm-hmm. it jumps around all over the place in terms of chronology. It's divided into two volumes... Um, it comes to a total of about four and a half hours, uh-huh. and it's uh, it's an experience. It's an experience. Is I, it a roller coaster ride? In a way, in a way, it's not particularly sexy. So, don't go see it if you're uh, if you're after you know an erotic thriller. Because we should uh, probably put this in context. Because there's there's real sex in this movie. Mm-hmm. They used um, porn stars to double for for the stars. It's it's a bit unclear who did what, so to speak. Um, but there is. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you do see Shia LaBeouf's Crystal Skulls. You don't see Christian Slater's Broken Arrow, but you do see <laughs> there's there, there's Willie. There, there's there's a lot of things. You're going to see a lot of things. Let me let me just put put it like that. You're um, going to see a lot of things doing a lot of things to other things. That's that's the uh, the general idea. Uh, seems a shame, even when it comes to a movie like this, Shia LaBeouf can't use his own penis. <laughs> <laughs> he said it, I just he read a news I just read, he was just interviewed very recently this week and said he asked Lars von Trier if he could attach a camera to his penis <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he wasn't allowed sadly I mean there were insurance issues or, or they just didn't want to put the camera there but um, yeah everyone is very committed in this film there's um, yeah. it's um, it's an intense experience at times it's really funny uh, the framing device is um that Charlotte Gainsbourg's character Joe is with Stellan Skarsgård, a character. Uh, his character finds her in the street. She's been injured, and he takes her in, and she's telling her story to him. Mm-hmm. 
there's some very darkly funny stuff. He goes off on a lot of digressions. He talks about fly fishing for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he talks about classical music. So there's it's it's all over the place in terms of where it goes. But uh, I I enjoyed it. I'm I'm a Lars von Trier fan. It's um it's a bit lighter than Melancholia. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I don't know how it can not be. Yeah. But it's got it's got real comedy in there. Yeah, I, th- I think um, lead is lighter than Melancholia. To be yeah, honest, this is probably true. Um, uh, von Trier obviously is known as a, this great provocateur. Is this film provocative? Oh, absolutely, yeah. There's, there's tons of stuff. There's a scene involving a paedophile in which Stellan Skarsgård's character says that all paedophiles should get a medal. Um, okay. Or not all paedophiles, but rather ones who don't act on it. Um, okay. So if you have paedophilic instincts but you don't act on it, that's that's controversial. So you can almost imagine Von Trier off camera just laughing as he knows that he's going to be dropping these bombs. Oh, there's definitely eventually. moments. And I don't want to give anything away, but there's something that happens at the end of the mm. second volume, which you can... You can uh, basically hear him cackling <laughs> off screen when it happens. Um, I love that he turned up at the uh, Berlin Film Festival wearing a Persona Non Grata t-shirt in the style of the Cannes Film Festival logo, which is right. <laughs> yeah. just a really nice touch. And I also really want that t-shirt. Um, but you mentioned there, you know, this film is has right from the off uh, been notorious, I guess, for Von Trier's declaration that it will depict real sex. Mm-hmm. And you, But you said it's not sexy. People no. are going along maybe with the Dirty Mac Brigade this weekend, they might be slightly disappointed. It seems to me this movie it almost goes out of its way to be unsexy. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's right. It's not sexy, because ultimately this is the story of a nymphomaniac who can't control him, him a woman who can't control her impulses, mm. and she's suffering throughout these two films. She's not having a great time. It's not Emmanuel. It's not Emmanuel. Okay. This, is not, this is not sexy sex. This is Addiction. You know, often painful, mm. horrible, you know, grimy stuff going on. Uh, Jamie Bell appears in the second volume as a guy who's who's you know she's pe- she's sort of going visiting him to be punished, and um, yeah, I mean it's uneven. There's stuff in it which you kind of go like Shia LaBeouf's accent is uh, <laughs> astonishing. He's I think he's it's hard to tell where this film is set, but he's doing a British accent or he's trying to do a British accent, which is amazing. But yeah, so that's but I I I was never bored and it's four, mm. it was four and a half hours long. So wow. Uh, high praise indeed and there's four stars we give mm-hmm. Nymphomaniac volumes 1 and 2 I said chapters 1 and 2 earlier on it's actually volumes 1 and 2 uh, and just a very very quick note this podcast goes out on a Friday Friday the 21st of February if you're listening to it on Sunday the 23rd of February then you've missed your chance to see Nymphomaniac volumes 1 and 2 on the big screen because it's getting a one day release only uh, across the country but one day only in a double bill so it, Saturday it's your only chance to go and see it yeah, I do have one bit of advice. Um, I popped out between the two volumes to grab a snack. Um, the only thing I could find was a bratwurst. <laughs> I took that back into the into the screening. You will get weird looks. Avoid purchasing a bratwurst. Whatever you do. Okay. What okay. cinema did you see that? Bratwurst. It was on Old Compton Street, actually. Uh, <laughs> was it? Yeah. Uh, let's move on. Yes, let's swiftly move on. Phil, did you buy a bratwurst before seeing Stranger by the Lake? <laughs> I knock first, actually. Okay, cool. Um, I um, Stranger by the Lake does not end in a rap, which summarises the plot. But I've written one, anyway. Okay. <laughs> Do you want to hear it? Put your heart yeah, on it. Fog has stumbled into a major crime. His gay lover by a lake has off someone in their prime. What happens next will blow your mind and other things as well. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Wow. Frank is the protagonist. He is a handsome... Uh, he's a handsome it, again this is a film that doesn't have any sort of specific location it's by a lake it's in high summer Frank is a gay man it's a cruising spot and this is a film that 
is very sexualized and like um, this podcast like this podcast things can get sexy in it and uh also like this podcast a lot of people wearing speedos um <laughs> which made me think that it could have been subtitled speedo cruise control <laughs> <laughs> so on that note the plot uh it's it, it it's a thriller it's a slow burn thriller it's a really stylish beautiful film i wanted to name check um the cinematography the cinematography is stunning claire mathon or claire mathon uh, French DP behind this. There are so few women cinematographers in the business, so I think it's worth um, pointing out that her work in this is great. It captures the light um, shining through this kind of the mm-hmm. trees, mm-hmm. the the the, in, the sort of umbrella, the uh, the lake, um, in which you know basically men sleep with other men. Some of it's kind of played almost comically. There's a man who is who pops up from time to time in the film and just kind of stands next to couples kind of masturbating in their direction and there's a scene where one of the couples one of the guys goes it's not really a good time we're just chatting we're not even having sex here uh can you come back later <laughs> and he's like okay i'm not listening to what you're saying and they're like doesn't matter come back later we'll be having sex later so come back for that um so it's all kind of very much it's it's uh it's not coy and I think that's to its strength. It's not going to be everyone's cup of tea. I wouldn't necessarily take your grandma to see this film unless your grandmother is, say, I don't know, Joan Rivers or someone um, with a very open mind because the sex is uh, explicit. And they, again, used doubles, I believe. The actors didn't want to do the sex scenes, but um, it does feature scenes that will, I think some viewers may find confronting. We need to get that guy from the BBFC back on. We do. Well, <laughs> because they're, they're, it's interesting. It's an 18. I mean, it's an 18 that could... So is Nymphomaniac. And so is Nymphomaniac. Two 18s, both of which could be 15s and maybe open themselves up to a bigger audience, but don't make that decision because they want to show how things are and just, and you know, the sex is a big part of this, this film. It's a thriller, but it's also about a guy that's basically looking for a bit more. Frank has, Frank has his eye on Michel, who's, uh, who's a very sort of swarthy, rugged French dude with a resemblance to 70s-era Tom Selleck with a big bushy moustache. And he sees uh, Tom Selleck character um, <laughs> drowning. I wish it were Tom Selleck. Drowning, drowning another one of his sort of brief dalliances in the lake as the night falls. And he's, he's the only witness. So it's a kind of a rear window uh, uh, blow up basic instinct scenario are you choosing these words deliberately (laughs) (laughs) honestly but when you're talking about sexy stuff every word is a double entendre so you're just gonna have to ride with me it is hard (laughs) i can't i can't help it it does get hard i can't help myself chris in the pod booth um Um, our review we uh, we gave this film five stars i'm not gonna lie to you it's really fantastic um our reviewer um (laughs) gd described beautifully uh the robust couplings that you'll see in this film um i'd also point out how lovely how very alan bennett i loved it it's a beautiful turn of phrase i really enjoyed that and um and she she also referenced the returns as if you've seen that channel four the french um the french uh miniseries it has the same kind of it's it's a sort of a a fog of thriller and drama tropes and romance and sex and it doesn't really kind of necessarily conform to a specific genre but it's a really beautiful mood piece and it has no music the person that I thought about quite a lot was Michael Haneke mm. Michael Haneke, Eric Romare kind of films that, that that tackle things in a very sort of unsparing, unblinking way and this film does that and it does it brilliantly Five stars for Stranger by the Lake, it's interesting though when we talked about the BBFC because 
I think there's a, there's a, a softening of attitudes towards uh, the depiction of explicit um, sex on screen, and it has been over the years. I mean, I remember whenever Basic Instinct came out, uh, Paul Verhoeven said it would be. I think he said something like, within five or ten years, we would see a major A-list star mm. actually having sex on camera. Now, obviously, that hasn't come to pass uh, again with the double entendres, but um, it is interesting. Nymphomaniac does push it as far as any major star has ever ever done, even by allowing their faces to be grafted onto other bodies with you know, yeah, things going in directions and. <laughs> other things going into things. Uh, that's that's interesting, isn't it? Well, it is very interesting. Lake, you know? Yes, absolutely. And I think it's um, you know there was obviously an issue with blue is the warmest color that was well documented about the actors, the actresses, and the director. Maybe they were they were younger and newer to it. But I mean, there's an incredible amount of trust that I think an actor puts in a director, and I, it, it speaks volumes for Lars von Trier and how much they want to work with him. Those posters, you're putting yourself out there in quite a. But, but there are also there are also a couple, a couple of other issues, and I'd love to be able to talk to actors about this as well. But you, with Blue Swarm's Color, it was interesting because when that movie came out, especially in Cannes, there was an awful lot of misreporting uh, about that film that the uh, the girls in it, Lea Sadu and Adele Exarchopoulos, were actually having sex on camera. And they were not. They were wearing prostheses. They were, you know, and it was very, very rigorously choreographed over, I think, a 10 day period. But it was reported initially as that they were having uh, sex for real. Uh, I just think there's an interesting issue here about commitment and actors' commitment to truth. Mm. And how far do you go as an actor yes. in achieving that truth? Yeah, I mean, this has been going on since the 70s, really, with Don't Look Now, with Donald Sutherland yeah. mm. and um, Julie Christie. And there were all the, the, all the same stories and rumours and all that kind of stuff going on. So this is nothing new. Mm. But you are seeing more, certainly, these days. That's a very good point. That's an enduring rumour, isn't it, that those two actually had sex for real. And, you know, I, I interviewed Tony Richardson, the cinematographer, and Nick Rogue as well. And, mm. you know, it's, it's a myth that it wasn't of their making, but... I guess a scurrilous rumor for the actors, but um, I guess that reflects on the quality of the honesty of what they're filming. But going back to the BBFC, when we had um, when we talked to David Austin, the um, one of the sort of head guys over there, they were talking about that it's, it's the public attitudes is what the BBFC reflects. They, you know, they do their surveys and they want to find out how the public feels about these sex things. And I think it's about context. If it's serious and in context, and it isn't sort of transgressive or like crossing sort of you know issues of age. Uh, what have you? Then I think I think the public yeah. is yeah more open-minded about it these days potentially. I think I think it's a rebalancing because um, if you remember uh, the documentary, this film is not yet rated from a few years ago. One of the major sort of arguments of that of that film now that was about the MPAA, not the BBFC. But one of the major arguments was that the ratings agency are you know inappropriately harsh about uh, sex as compared to violence, and in particular about uh, gay sex or or anything other than, you know, very, very sort of, quote-unquote, conventional heterosexual sex. Um, and I think this is maybe just a, a, a balancing of those issues and, a, a, you know, the beginnings of a need to, to sort of be fair in terms of ratings and to, you know, acknowledge that not everybody is one man, one woman and, uh, you know, billowing curtains in the breeze. No, exactly. Well, it's three films that have arrived together um, in a short <laughs> space of time and nicely dodged thanks and um, it's raised the issue and I think it's you know it's an interesting debate to have I reckon and, and uh, but the, the one thing that unites them is they're all really really good movies so mm. you know they're judged on their own merits I think and I think that's the important factor I do wonder about actors who, who do go the extra mile um, where you're talking about body doubles or prosthetics that's one thing but you know, for example Michael Winterbottom's Nine Songs mm-hmm. A few years ago, I actually had the actors Kieran O'Brien and Margot Stilly, who actually, you know, did have real sex on camera. And I guess for them, it'd be interesting to talk to them to see whether they have a stigma attached to them after that. 
and yeah. whether that has yeah. hurt or enhanced her career as Marcus Stilley has gone on to work again with Winterbottom on the trip uh, you know uh, Kieran O'Brien looking at his credits you know he's also worked with Michael Winterbottom again in Look of Love so clearly hasn't hurt them with that director but looking at their other credits it's maybe mm. I don't know maybe there might be a stigma attached yeah. there, there often is I mean it, it, there's often a sense of you want to be sexy but not too sexy and the, there's the sort of double Every standard day. and to be honest <laughs> I think it's it's something, that's, it's something that's more of a risk for I would say at the moment actresses not actors uh, first of all they tend to be younger starting their careers or certainly getting to, to star status they have a shorter career span generally speaking there aren't many roles for older women and there are for older men um, and and it, it, the the double standard in society risks being reflected in in film as well, so that they get judged as quote unquote sluts or whatever. Um, yeah. When yeah, absolutely. you know the man doesn't. Absolutely. Let's talk about masturbation. Let's not nuts. talk about masturbation. Um, that's Sabre for the live podcast, shall we? Uh, that escalated quickly. <laughs> I didn't expect that to turn into a full-blown debate. But there we go. Uh, that's it for this week's Emperor podcast. Five stars for Strange by the Lake. Phil, you would say that's the best film of the week? Yes, well... Would, you say, would you recommend people go see that? Only Lovers Left Alive? Uh, yes, I would recommend people go and see uh, Strange by the Lake with t- caveats. Actually, it'd be a hell of a double bill, wouldn't it? be a hell of a double bill uh, join us next week for more film related fun when we'll be bringing you our live show Woo! featuring actually no I'm not going to say I'm not going to say I'm going to leave it to be a surprise for the 300 Hardy Souls who got tickets for the show uh, which will be up as usual next Friday we're recording it on Tuesday but it'll be up next Friday um, so there you go assuming um, all goes well assuming all goes well and the Prince Charles isn't burned to the ground by protesting people careful now down with this sort of thing uh, until then it is goodbye from Helen goodbye it's goodbye from Nick. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Phil. Bye. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to dawn a pair of Speedos and stand provocatively by Lelido at Rockwell Park. See you next week. Bye. <laughs>